Hey, live from AC Second Fans. This is Chris Garretts of Nothing Rhymes with Garretts fame. I have another podcast called the Pietist Schoolman Podcast that runs on the Christian Humanist Network. As we start our kind of mini third season on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we thought we would simulcast or a simul podcast on both networks. Enjoy. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. This week on the Pietist Schoolman Podcast, on the 500th anniversary week, where the Reformation went after 1517, and specifically the many divides of the Protestant Reformation. Welcome back to the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. Once again, I'm Chris Garrett, your host, joined by my Bethel University colleague, uh, Sam Mulberry. I don't know why I paused there. I'm <laughs> That's right. trying to think of more to say. Keep the suspense, Chris, you know? I feel like I should have a different title for you each week, and <laughs> all I just say is you're my colleague, so that's good enough. Uh, so again, in this, our third season, we are marking the 500th anniversary of Luther posting the 95 Theses, or mailing them, or whatever he did, maybe on October 31st. Stamps.com, if they want to sponsor us. <laughs> that's right. I think it was actually like a Dropbox of some sort. That could be, yeah. Um, and now we're really starting to look beyond Luther. Well, we'll talk about Luther, but look to some of the history and the complicated legacies of the Protestant Reformation. But first, like Sam, what, what was your favorite moment of Reformation 500 yesterday? You know, we uh, we went over to uh, my wife's sister's house for a, a party to celebrate, and like all the kids got dressed up in costumes. Your favorite and they performer. went. They no, oh, I hadn't thought of that. They went house to house, and people gave them candy. And I figured, like, I've never had a Reformation. Interesting. Day. Yeah, that's that sounds great. Like, <laughs> in truth, like like honestly, had people not. Asked me like, oh, so are you doing big things for Reformation Day? Because you know, because yeah. because of teaching CWC, like it, I kind of would have missed it. It was so strange because that was mostly my experience. Anytime I like turned my attention away from my computer and left my office, it was nothing at all was happening. And then I was I decided to do this ridiculous thing where I tweeted year by year through the Reformation. Which ended up taking like eight hours with some pauses and was like 150 tweets. It was a ridiculous thing to do. But like, it just like sucked me in. It felt like my whole world was the Reformation. And and so the kind of disjunction between that and how everyone else in the world operated was kind of um, um, incredible. What a weird life choice you made to do that. It was. Yeah, you would think I have other things to do. But I thought, this is how I will serve my public as a historian. And of course, I'm not sure anyone paid any any real attention to it but it's been collected so if you go on twitter you can find the two-part twitter moment series of my tweeting through the reformation wow i will link to that because i know everyone wants to that's that right right now um yeah it was i mean it was partly uh, i feel like it would have been different if it had fallen on a different day of the week you know, as mm-hmm. you mentioned this course that we teach cwc we're in the middle of the reformations and it's like we've talked about this and tuesday is the one day there's nothing happening in cwc so if it had, like, been a Monday or Friday, it would have been a huge deal. Oh, sure. And yeah, I think, yeah. like, last Friday, we actually talked quite a bit about it. We played the Reformation polka that some mm-hmm. of you might actually know us better from. Um, did it hit 300,000? I checked this morning, and it's at 297,000, which is a, an 11,000 view jump in since Friday. Oh, just so. yesterday. I think it was, like, six or 7,000. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was pretty good. Anyway, this, <laughs> we don't have to talk about that the whole time. We'll do a separate pod just breaking down the history of that. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know what the next big anniversary to plan for is, though. Like, I think there, we, we put were a talk- lot of energy into this. Yeah, we were talking about this on the, the way home with my, my son asked, like, 
my son was sort of appalled that people weren't excited about the 500th anniversary. Um, and then he, then he asked, like, well, is there another one coming up? And I said, probably, you know, 2021 is the next. I mean, is there, one. is there something in between? Well, I think we're forgetting about the 400th anniversary of the defenestration of Prague next year, which begins the 30 years war. I'm a little worried because I don't really want to know how people are going to uh, uh, recall the defenestration of Prague, which is throwing people out of a, a window, mm-hmm. actually. But, I mean, that's a decently big moment. Like, 30 years war is an important event. Probably doesn't rise quite to this level. But if you wanted something and you just can't let this go, you can celebrate that. I mean, it is interesting you mentioned 2021 because what I have thought during this whole thing is, like, that's the real anniversary. Like, I understand why we've marked the 95 theses, but if I think what everyone... Um, attaches to the Reformation, like 1521 is the real moment where we see that. Why, why is 15, and maybe we don't need to cover it, why is 1517 more famous broadly? Because it is. I mean, yeah, like, and like, like, I want to blame it on, you know, the kind of apocryphal story of kneeling the theses to the door is such a, because that really, I mean, the evidence for that is pretty dubious. But like, people are still celebrating it. Like, there was a 1617 celebration, a 1717 celebration. Um, I mean, it's when Luther bursts on the scene. Um, it's four years earlier, and we're just impatient and can't wait to celebrate. I don't know. Like, I mean, yeah. I, but I mean, even in even like if Luther shows up in popular culture, so I'll use one example. This is a twenty-year-old example, but like as far as I know, the only Luther Simpsons reference is a posting of the ninety-five theses reference. Like, like the if Halloween it's, episode, right? Yeah, if it's yeah. going to show up in pop culture, like it's not going to be. The Diet of Worms. It's going to which be, is which is interesting because like is it the optics of nailing a? It, I think it is. Like, I I mean, I think like in the 17th and 18th century, if you're a Lutheran, like I, I mean, like that is important. Um, I, I think though, like in the broader kind of culture, it is this phenomenon of the kneeling sort of story mm-hmm. coming up as like the defiant individual taking out a sledgehammer and posting these things for the whole world to see. I mean, it's a very kind of like modern sort of right. twist on the now, story. Now, what's interesting is in the the uh, theatrical depictions of Luther, like films about Luther, like the 2003 film, and then the 50s—is it 50s, 60s yeah. era yep. film? 50s, I think. Like the Diet of Worms really is the big yeah. moment. Well, but I, I think. So, like, I would say here, like, maybe Christian memory ought to be a little bit different. Like, that really is a big moment, for better and for worse. So, I I think I've mentioned Mark Knoll's Turning Points book, which is a nice kind of survey if you just want an introduction. But he picks it precisely because there are these moments where it feels like the church comes to a fork in the road. And for him, it's really 1521, because that's the moment where you get the defining statement of Protestantism. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Mm -hmm. But you also, he points out, get the defining statement of Catholicism from the Catholic official, a guy named Johann Eck, who's interrogating Luther, said, like, with remarkable aplomb and insight, but there's now going to be nothing certain about Christianity. He he kind Mm -hmm. of, like, he sees very clearly if everyone is going to have to then stand on the scripture by themselves, we will never have anything settled again. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and in some respects, that, that will be the response to the Catholic reformers. And I mean, Tetzel even writes something like that in 1518, of all things. So I, I think, like, in terms of where the church remembers it, I, I really would have people 
come back to this in four years. And like that April of 2021, let's think about what it means to say, here I stand. Let me ask you a question then about something 13 years from now, because and I, and I, like the, the I think it's 13 years from now, the, the Luther movie, the 2003 Joseph Fiennes Luther movie, which the Lutherans made. Like, <laughs> Thriving Financial for Luther. That's right. The, the big scene, that culminating scene, is the uh, Augsburg Confession. Mm-hmm. Um, where does that rank in terms of... I mean, like that's that that's getting sort of specifically very Lutheran. But like, will uh, will twenty thirty be a big year for Lutherans, or was that just a way well, to end the movie? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I I, I always kind of feel like they just ran out of money. Okay, like, <laughs> it does feel like that when it you watch the movie. Like ran out of, especially because it ends with a scene that Luther's not in. I know. <laughs> they gotta bring the news to him. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay. Um, I, maybe for Lutheran, I mean, like, I think about this for my own tradition. The covenant actually splits from Lutherans because they say we don't need to recognize the Augsburg Confession as a creed. Like, we actually know it, some mm-hmm. of us. I mean, like, I think we affirm most of the theology. But, like, here's where you start to lose a lot of Protestants if you say that's going to be a defining moment. Um, and, like, I honestly wonder how many Lutherans know the Augsburg Confession at this point okay. and agree with it. Like, I, I don't think that's going to get a lot of traction. So before we move on to our topic uh, – for the day um so i've been you know my son was very excited about the the 500th anniversary and it occurs to me now and i realize this movie's not great as a cinematic work but like should i should like my son and i sit down and watch the 2003 film luther or would that just muddy the waters for him too i think much? the word we use in class is a very teachable movie yeah i think it's actually not i think bad. he would like it yeah i think it's not bad up until the Diet of worms and after that, the timeline starts getting both compressed and rearranged. Mm-hmm. Like some of the things we're going to talk about today get glossed over really um, badly, and you get this kind of like weird artificial ending of 1530. So, would you would you be willing if? And I think we could probably post this on YouTube to do a mystery science theater oh 3000 style breakdown of that movie with me. Like my friend, you've had many good ideas in your life, but I think you just had the best one. All right, possible. I don't know what the copyright issues are with this. But we'll I'd figure be it. Very out. happy to do this with you. So stay tuned for that, everyone. Um, so what we are talking about today is what kind of lies on the other side of 1517 and really on the other side of 1521. You know, once Luther makes this stand, one thing that movie does that I really appreciate that I think gets it right, you got this like hushed silence. Everyone knows Luther has to make a choice with his life. Like, is he going to recant and save himself or is he going to be defiant? And he's defiant. And there's like a pause, a beat. And then, like, bedlam ensues. And it's great. Like, everyone starts arguing. Some people are thrilled. Some people are horrified. Like, and I don't think the movie includes this, but that's where that Catholic official act does say there will be nothing settled. And so I was thinking about this when I was reading uh, uh, the current book that's on my shelf with the Reformation. It's called Rebel in the Ranks. It's by a Catholic scholar at Notre Dame named Brad Gregory. And he's had actually several books I'd recommend. I might come back to one next week called Salvation at Stake. But, you know, he, um, I think, wanted to hop on the 500th anniversary train and published, uh, it's for Harper. It's a very general interest book. I think it's very readable. Um, I first picked it up thinking it's kind of like a Luther biography because it's called Rebel in the Ranks. It's got a big chronic portrait of Luther on it. And the first chapter is all about up to 1521. And then the second chapter is called A Fractious Movement. And it starts to tease out what happens as soon as nothing is settled and as soon as the test is scripture alone. And he starts looking at some of the debates that pit Protestant against Protestant, or at the time they called themselves evangelical against evangelical. And so here's the larger case he's making with the book, which is, first of all, he wants to convince you that sola scriptura inevitably leads to divisions in the church. That functionally, there's no way to actually have anything settled or unified if the standard is 
my conscience is bound to the word of God as found in scripture alone. And then second, it's always going to be much more because it's always going to be what he calls hyphenated more than religion. And that kind of fits you know, late medieval Christendom. Nothing is just about religion. Like economics is about religion and politics is about religion and law is about religion. So here's how he uh, sums it up. In Luther's estimation, scripture alone was the solution, but re in reality, it only created another problem. Though it liberated evangelicals from the Roman church, it also plunged them into the beginning of an unwanted Protestant pluralism. What lay behind these church-dividing disagreements was the very thing that had launched the Reformation in the first place, Luther's insistence on scripture as the singular authority for Christian faith and life. If religion had just been religion, these fissures might not have mattered too much. But in the 16th century, religion was never just religion, so the ruptures and rifts made worlds of difference. Religion wasn't separate from the exercise of power or one's duties to others or the buying and selling of goods. It wasn't separate from education or morality. It touched everything, which meant disagreements about it threatened to disrupt everything. Frictions between evangelicals and those who resisted them in defense of the old religion were bad enough. But expressions of the Reformation, such as the Peasants' War and the Anabaptist Kingdom of Munster, showed to their critics some of the disturbing directions the gospel might be taken. So that's what I want to talk about here today. And at the end, maybe we can come back to this thesis that he will try to defend over the rest of the book and see what we think about it. But where do we see some of these moments where people who share a belief that essentially the Roman Church is beyond saving and that Scripture alone is the final authority, nonetheless come you know, figuratively or literally to blows with each other. So I want to talk about three or four of these moments. We'll come back to the Kingdom of Munster next week when we talk about the Radical Reformation. But let's start with uh, art, which I know Sam is a former art teacher and, and someone who I like. I'm especially interested to hear your riff on this. So Luther, after the date of Worms, is taken into a kind of protective custody at the Wartburg Castle by Frederick the Wise. And uh, while he's there, he's mostly working on translating the New Testament into kind of vernacular German. While he's gone, the Reformation proceeds under the leadership of some of his fellow professors at the University in Wittenberg, and the most of, um, you know, best known and oldest of them is a guy named Andreas Karlstadt. And Karlstadt very quickly moves in pretty radical directions. He translates the Mass from Latin into German. He starts serving the uh, laity, both the bread and the cup. He gets married and breaks his vow of celibacy. He criticizes monasticism. And then in January 1522, he writes a pamphlet against the use of images in the churches. And you start getting waves of iconoclasm, you know, literally the smashing of images, which is an old Christian tradition. Like Eastern Orthodoxy is racked by this debate during the Middle Ages. But it's the first time it's really shown up in the Latin-speaking world in a while, and um, it, it horrifies Luther. It's one of the things that brings him out of hiding, and he comes back and, and moderates the Reformation in Wittenberg. And he'll write his own pamphlet against Karlstadt, and they have a falling out uh, later on. And at the heart of it is really a difference in interpretation of the Ten Commandments. You know, what, what does it mean to only honor the God and have no graven images? The, I guess the first two commandments, however you count them. Right? And, and they both, when they write their pamphlets, they just land on this, right? They just feel like it's settled, right? You've got scripture and, you know, to Karlstadt, having art in churches just invites idolatry. And even if it... Even if you can disagree about what graven images looks like, it's still leading people away from worshiping the one true God. And for Luther, you know, it, it, you know, it, at the very least, it's a way that illiterate people can encounter God's word. But more than that, he feels like it actually deepens the experience of worship. Um, and, and this then will separate Protestants. You know, reforms, Zwingli and Calvin will side in with Karlstadt. Um, with, 
I mean, as I don't know if this was like a moment of having grown up Catholic and then coming to a place like that. Did you have a moment of that where you're kind of wondering? I mean, I don't know what your Catholic church was like growing up, how much art played a role in it, but I would feel like at least basically there's still a kind of Catholic versus many Protestant church divide of the role that the visual or the aesthetic plays. Sure. You know, it's funny because if I think about what I was probably thinking at the time, it was more of a divide between new and old in terms of like when I would go to a Protestant church, they were usually new spaces that seemed like they were drywalled and white and 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 when i think about catholic churches they were all you know minnesota version of old like they were old so it's like oh well maybe this is just like i didn't i guess i didn't read that into it it took me really until reading um and, and learning about carl stop especially calvin people like that who who are sort of more on the side of of kind of stripping down the church that i realized like this is more than just a matter of taste, like what a tasteful mm-hmm. space looks like, but there's actually kind of a theology attached to it. Yeah, I mean, Calvin and, and Zwingli before him, I mean, it has to do with worship, certainly. It has to do with what is the word of God. Mm-hmm. And I mean, already in the 15th century, there's a kind of turn towards longer, more skillful preaching. In some sense that maybe that's not the Eucharist is the center of what happens in work. And that in many ways, that's the Protestant movement. Luther will embrace this too. But for Calvin and Zwingli, art distracts from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's one reason pews are added in Protestant churches is you want to be able to sit there with your printed word, listening to the word proclaimed and not have anything to, to distract your wandering attention, such as stained glass or an altarpiece or fancy carved wood. Right? It's interesting. Like I find myself at one level like drawn to Karlstad. I'm always drawn to the people who like push Sola Scriptura farther because it's like they're basically because in part because they're pointing out how problematic it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also like trying they're trying to follow Luther's method. And yeah. what's, the interesting thing about all of this is that Luther to be Luther needed to have absolute certainty both in his method and in his conclusions, yeah. you know, um, and that that's where some of these problems come from is he thinks not only he thinks if you follow this method, you will come to this conclusion and that's him. But what's interesting about, um, about sort of any, about, about Sola Scriptura and, and especially the, the, um, Karlstad version of it. I mean, you sometimes talk about, uh, Christian's propensity to kind of a, a Gnosticism, right? That it becomes all about the spirit and not about the body and these types of things. Um, and what I find interesting is Sola Scriptura has the potential of, like, it, it actually just becomes all about words. Yeah. And, like, and it really, it, like, there's something powerful in Christianity where Christ didn't, it's not that God gave a new, it's not like the Quran where it's a new revelation and these are the word for word things. He came in a body and talked to people and lived among people. So like, I feel like it, it is, that's by definition then more visual than just a text. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean that, that makes me drawn away from someone like Karlstad because they're, I feel like they're missing a core of the gospel is, is this account and it is this authority, but it's telling us about something that existed beyond words. Yeah, I mean, this might also lead us since we might get to a debate about the sacrament, too. I mean, because that's another way in which it goes beyond the word to incarnation, right, in which the word is made flesh or it's made material. Or it's not, I mean, and, and it's, I think, why Luther is reluctant to give up some kind of mystery about what's happening mm-hmm. to the bread and the cup, right? And it can't just be this kind of memorial service. And, and so I... I mean, I'm not a theologian enough to do this, but I'm sure there is some kind of logical connection between this view of images that 
starts with Karlstad and then breaks into the Reformed tradition and the way you think about the sacraments or ordinances, too. I mean, mm-hmm. and then it has, I think I think that's a fair point to bring up, too. Like, what, are there kind of Gnostic tendencies in that to sort of de-physicalize what's happening and make it simply the word that we hear? No, I mean, I'd also say it, there's something very powerful about the word, right? I mean, Jesus Absolutely. is the word, right? And so, like, as I've thought about it, I want to recognize that I am prone to lament the Reformation, be a kind of guilt-stricken Protestant. I mean, like, one thing that does strike me is I am really grateful for the centrality of the written word. But that's partly because I'm an intellectual who likes reading things mm-hmm. and listening to sermons and, and thinking, right? And, and I don't actually need art that much to connect with. Mm-hmm. And I think Luther does have an important argument to make, which is for some people, like, this is actually how you encounter God. Mm-hmm. And even even much as he wants the sermon to be central and he wants people to be educated Christians who read their Bible or at least read their catechism, you know, he knows that God speaks to us in many different ways and that some of those might actually be visual and aesthetic, uh, auditory, and, and not just written. Um, of course, what's really... What's really striking with Luther, when he writes his response, I mean, he responded, but the actual pamphlet that always gets quoted back to Karlstadt is actually written three years later. And Luther, at one point in that pamphlet, almost, he doesn't quite say this, but he's like, let's grant, you know, the Karlstadt is right. I mean, like, even if I were to say that it's right to take images out of church, there's still a right way and a wrong way to do it. Mm-hmm. And his actual fundamental critique of Karlstadt um, is that iconoclasm is happening in a disorderly way. Mm-hmm. He calls it a Karlstadtian manner. And by doing that, you are making the masses mad and foolish and secretly accustoming them to revolution. Now, he's saying that in 1525, in the midst of revolution. This is the heart of what's called the German Peasants' War or the War of the Common Man. And that's maybe the second big divide to get to. Because Karlstadt eventually leaves Wittenberg, becomes a pastor in a countryside church, and becomes a radical Protestant. And there's a whole wave of kind of um, disillusioned evangelicals or Lutherans who kind of realize the limits of Luther's Reformation and want to explore its implications further. What does scripture alone mean? What what does Galatians mean when it says the, there is no slave or free in Christ, right? Can we explore that? And it taps into some lingering late medieval um, unrest. I mean, there have been peasants' revolts all across Europe since the 14th century. There's a big one in Germany in the late uh, 15th century. And um, this breaks out into open warfare in late 1524 in different parts of the Holy Roman Empire. It even moves a little bit into the Kingdom of France. In 1525, Luther has to confront this because it's, it's Lutherans who are leading this. It's Lutheran pastors, Lutheran laity. They write a Lutheran document called the Twelve Articles that makes a Lutheran case that by Scripture, you know, we, we should be able not only to have people who preach a Protestant gospel in a language we understand, but we should have hunting and fishing rights, and we should have lower rents, and we should have fewer duties to our feudal landlords, and we should be treated like people made in the image of God, right? There's a sense of emerging equality mm-hmm. based on their reading of Scripture and their understanding of the gospel maybe as political implications that upset medieval hierarchies. And Luther has a couple of responses. The first one is a little bit more moderate. I mean, the first one is actually aimed at the Lord's to say you actually are supposed to be just. You know, we actually are treating people abort. But he also says there's still no right of revolution. And he, he says that um, in the end, the kingdom of the world is not to bring about justice, right? And then later in 1525, uh, he writes one of his most infamous pamphlets where he suggests that there are no devils left in hell. They're all in the peasant's army. And he says to the princes of Germany, it's like when you have a mad dog, you have to put him down. You should smite, slay, and stab any that you find. They are the servants of the Antichrist. And it's... um, 
you know, there, there's there are two sides of every debate. Like, it's a really horrifying document, right? Like, even if you kind of understand it in its context, there even Luther's allies are kind of taken aback at his tone. But there is something here that's really important, and this gets back to Gregory's argument: this is always more than religion. You know, if this is this were a place where the two kingdoms really were separate from each other. Yeah, you might not have got to this point, but now, like, political disputes are about the Antichrist and about spiritual warfare, but also, like, justice is about the gospel, and scripture alone is at the core of all of it, and how do you have this argument? And so I think this becomes a really difficult moment for our students, who are citizens of a country born in revolution, to realize that Martin Luther is a medieval conservative who really thinks that the authorities are ordained by God, and even if they're unjust, you have no recourse other than to suffer or flee. You certainly can take up arms against them. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is a big part of, of uh, Gregory's chapter. And in the end, what we'll talk about next week, the Radical Reformation, he claims those are the actual Protestants. Magisterial Protestants aren't really Protestant. They, they don't really follow the logic of this through to the end. The, the Radicals are the ones who really do believe we should just follow the word of God alone and tear down any structure, even by violence if need be. So, I mean, this becomes the second big debate. It doesn't necessarily lead to lingering, like, denominational divides like some of the others, but I think there is this kind of tension then. Um, So I I just did a talk this morning for my denomination, and the way it was framed was, why was Luther willing to stand up against the powers of his time? And, I mean, I know what that means. In a sense, he is. But what I also want to say is, well, he was because he had the support of other powers at right. his time, right? right? And it's actually others who really stand up against anyone in power. Not to say they're right for doing so, but I think we need to muddy the waters here about what Luther is actually right. doing. Well, I also think it's interesting, you know, as you, as you think about, um, as you were talking about Luther's critique of Karlstadt and Luther's critique of the peasants, you know, that part of it was part of this is, a, again, about method, about like, how do you go about these things, mm-hmm. which I keep whenever you say this, I keep thinking about Erasmus's letter to Melanchthon, where he's sort of saying, you know, the problem with Luther is he goes at like he goes at he goes at it with like a broad axe and like wants to instead of saying like, well, no, we can fix this, but we but Luther wants it immediate. Luther wants it. Like, Erasmus is criticizing Luther's method, and then Luther's criticizing their methods, yeah. even though, in a sense, they're using, they're learning something from Luther's method. They're just going in directions he doesn't want to go. Well, let's talk about Erasmus then. I, I thought we'd do like three. I think maybe we'll come back to the communion debate, because in the end, that's what separates the magisterial reformers. It's what's happening in, in, in the Lord's Supper. I think for both of us, probably, the most tragic figure in all of this is Desiderius Erasmus. Absolutely. Um who is a Christian human, he's, you know, depending on his birth date, he's either 17 or um, 14, 17 or 14 years older than Luther. He's a well-established figure. You know, before Luther, he's the best-selling author of this late medieval Europe. Uh, a lot of his students become Protestants, right? I mean, there's a lot of, both in his critique of the church and his kind of spirituality, his kind of primitivism going back to the early church, going back to scripture alone in the languages. Like, there's a lot of resonance here with Protestantism. There's a lot of hope among Luther, and especially, you mentioned Philip Melanchthon, Luther's young colleague. You know, if we could just recruit Erasmus to our side, like, that would be the blow. I mean, that, that, that would convince people that this is something that's not just a German rebellion or something. It's, it has real, like, intellectual heft to it. So for this silly thing that I did yesterday, one thing I did is I wanted to make Erasmus kind of the second protagonist. And so, like, 
almost as often as I quoted Luther, I wanted to quote Erasmus during this period, kind of up to 1524. And there is a, a nice blog post on at Pathios Catholic Channel a few years ago where one of the bloggers had pulled out all sorts of different, um, there are a few letters between Erasmus and Luther, and then a lot of letters you know, by Luther about Erasmus or by Erasmus about Luther. And there's, Erasmus, one thing you realize, he actually just kind of like repeats himself a lot. Like he does the Scylla versus Charybdis metaphor like half a dozen times. It's but a solid metaphor. It is. Well, so it is. It's this metaphor from the Odyssey. And I always, uh, it's kind of my shtick now. I always tell students I can never remember which is the sea monster and which is the whirlpool. But Odysseus, on his way back to Ithaca, has to steer a middle course between these two. Like you go too far in either direction. Charybdis is the whirlpool. Charybdis is going to suck you down to whirlpool. You'll die horribly. If you go far the other direction, skill of the sea monster will, will eat you alive. And you've got to find this impossibly narrow path between them. And so he does this in a lot of writings, and he does it with regard to Luther. And I can't remember if he calls Luther the skill or the Charybdis, but there's a sense that Luther is one of these two. He would be Charybdis. Uh, sure. Luther is Charybdis. And the other, then, is essentially like an unreformed church. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be a middle path between. And what he keeps saying again and again, you know, partly he's trying to distance himself from Luther without um, forsaking his critique of the church, but he says it's not your... It's not the content, it's your tone, mm -hmm. he says over and over again. And so there's a basic divisiveness about Luther that just bothers Erasmus, who is a person of peace in many respects. Not avoidance of conflict, like he is willing to have arguments with everyone, but he does really have this core belief in the unity of the body of Christ and that it should be characterized by peace. And he sees Luther as this like bull in a china shop. And so there's where the quote that you mentioned is from a 1524 letter from Erasmus to Melanchthon. Yeah, and the, the thing that, that I like about it is what precedes his, um, you know, sometimes the cure is worse than the disease is, is he's telling Melanchthon like, like, Order human things as you will. You will always find fault enough. I mean, he's basically saying, like, if you guys want to go make your own church, fine. But know that, like, it's not going to be perfect because it's – these things are – there. there's too much humanity involved. Like, there is sin in the world in that way. Right, which I always I – because mean, we actually introduced Erasmus in our class, not during the Reformation, but during the Renaissance as an example of humanism. And the move we usually make is we set up, like, Machiavelli on one side as this kind of godless Italian humanist, right, who detaches politics from any Christian ethics or justice. And then Erasmus, who even writes a response to Machiavelli on the education of a Christian prince, is a Christian humanist, right, the one who's trying to fuse faith with this new learning. But, and like, what makes them humanists is humanists have this, like, boundless sense of human potential. But, like, both of them actually have a fairly restrained view of human potential. I mean, like... There, there's there's um, a lot of room for education in both senses, but they also basically have the sense of like the kind of warpedness of humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Machiavelli is just more cynical about it and maybe more open uh, to it and how you'd uh, work with that warped wood. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, Erasmus does also have this sense, and maybe something that's this hard one kind of realization after 20 years of doing this. Like, I mean, this will never be perfectly fixed here in mortal existence. And I'm not sure Luther ever does get that. Like Luther does have the, the sense of like the reforming can be accomplished in time perfectly. And why doesn't anyone realize that? And why can't they just do what I want? <laughs> I mean, it's there, there's kind of this arrogance to Luther, this impatience to Luther, and I mean, kind of idealism of him that I, I think Erasmus finds pretty frustrating. Now, where they actually fall out is over what really is a theological question, freedom, not a political freedom or an economic freedom, but actually a freedom of, like, response to salvation, right? And so Erasmus finally is convinced to write a treatise on free will, and then 1525, in the middle of this peasants' war, Luther writes a pretty overheated 
But, you know, theologically, um, very precise response on the bondage of the will. And so there is an actual theological debate here about how much freedom we have to respond to God's grace. I mean, it's, it, but like the tone is very telling. Like Erasmus, like everything is kind of conditioned and modified and softened. Mm -hmm. And everything, he's trying to be as charitable as possible, even though he thinks Luther is out to lunch um, here. And Luther, it's like, how, what, I mean, it's like scathing and sarcastic and sardonic. But he also feels like Erasmus is completely wrong and it's just backsliding into papism mm -hmm. if you give any room to the free will. So I guess where we wind up is, as we resolve this episode, is I want to go back to Gregory's original point. Do you think, you know, even if we could just say, like, it only extends to religion, it's not going to spill into politics or economics mm -hmm. or anything else. Do you think Sola Scriptura is ultimately the antithesis or the enemy of Christian unity? Or is it just bound to happen that we get divisions like this, whether over art or free will or political equality? Is there a way? To I, I think. I mean, I think it's simultaneously, perhaps the most important and most powerful thing in the Reformation, and one of the biggest problems. Like, I, I think it, it just it, like it, and, and I think it's. I think it is deep enough to to be both of those things, uh, because because that is where the freedom, as, as he talks about in the book, that's where the freedom lies. But it's also that you know the the uh, the is it Van Eck or Eck? What was the at the Eck, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Eck, um, he's also right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like so. And both of those things are true. That that when you create this kind of freedom, or you acknowledge this kind of freedom, with freedom comes these other comes new problems. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think you know we kind of need to dis we kind of need to decide what problems we want. Do we want the problem? Do we want the problems of unity, or do we want the problems of freedom? Yeah, I mean, I, I like. I mean, I'm sympathetic to what, what this guy says in 1520. I also want to say, like, you know, I, I'm not sure the Christian life is one of settledness. Mm -hmm. I mean, is, is that what we should expect the kingdom of God on earth to look like? Is everything is settled and neat and orderly? Or is that just... I mean, there are That's very, actually the opposite, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, there are various yeah, human yeah. temptations here. There, there's a desire for, like, being right mm -hmm. and being seen to be right and having the courage to see others see you as right. And there's also... The kind of desire for peace, peace, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I know myself well enough to know that I fall into the latter camp. Like, I am conflict avoidant. I despise confrontation. And I do believe in the unity of the church and maybe to a fault. Um, and, and so I, I mostly, I guess, what I want to say is, like, why would you expect this to be resolved? Right. And I also want to say, like, historically, it's never been resolved. This is not the right. first time this has happened in the history of the church, and it won't be the last time. Either. One of my favorite favorite moments in uh, in, in literature is right before the Grand Inquisitor scene in the Brothers Karamazov. The thing that leads up to the, that conversation. How many episodes did it take for us to get to? Uh, that's right, Brothers. <laughs> um, they're, they're, right before they go into the Grand Inquisitor conversation, um, Ivan sits down with Alyosha. He's about and he's going to leave, and he says, well, "We may never see each other again." And 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 his idea is, we need to settle these things once and for all. And and to me, that's always. I remember the first time I read it. I just remember thinking how dangerous that was to say that anything we need to settle once and for all now. And then the thought that we're just going to keep living. It's like mm -hmm. life means things aren't settled. Yeah, there's know? a desire yeah. to which when we try. Because also, like, we also need this. Like we have to function. Too. And mm -hmm. like so, I I don't want to make it sound like I'm more radical than I am. But there is a way in which you come to a moment like that where, like, we have to once and for all settle this. Like, we all have to take a stand somewhere. Like, and then commit to that stand. And then commit to it. I mean, it it's a kind of, 
let's prematurely inaugurate judgment. Right. Right. Like, I mean, like we have to realize we live within history. We live within an unfolding of time that will continue on. We know not the hour or the date. Right. And and so there's there's a sense in which we have to just understand that and live into it as best we can. But that's a very hard thing to do. Like we, I think we do. People made in the image of God maybe crave that kind of settledness of judgment more than they ought. And so, yeah, I, like, I make myself sound like I'm this, like, radical who doesn't think there's anything settled about Christianity. But, like, I do think this is the debate that's unleashed, though. And so I understand why Gregory wants to call this out. I mean, as, as, especially as a Catholic scholar looking at this, writing for a year, the Protestants are prone to celebrate. Like, you need to understand the problem that, that's been unleashed by this. And we'll get to, he actually has a kind of present-day consequence that we'll talk about in our last episode. Because he thinks this actually leads indirectly to the secularization of the world. But we'll have to get back to that because I know you have to go to a meeting. We've run out of time. But thanks for joining us for our survey of some of these early Protestant divides and the, and the problems and possibility of sola scriptura. Join us next time. Sam and I will be comparing the magisterial and the radical reformation. So all you Anabaptists out there, get excited uh, as we look further into the 16th century. If you like what you heard, you can read more of what I have to say about Christianity, history, education, other things at the Pietist Schoolman blog and every Tuesday at the Anxious Bench on the Pathios Evangelical channel. My newest book, The Pietist Option, is available in bookstores now. It's not just Amazon. Like I found it at the Bethel Campus Store, the Roseville Barnes and Noble has it, so it actually is in bookstores. I'm not nice. lying. Uh, this podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. The episode was engineered by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garrett. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.